The following podcast contains audio extracted from videos on the Mythology Explained YouTube channel. Please note that there are two narrators for this podcast, myself, Silas, and Zach. Please enjoy. In mythology, creating the world, ruling the world, and destroying the world are almost always attributed to different gods, monsters, or phenomena. Using Norse mythology as the point of comparison, the quickening of the first life comes from the intermingling of fire and frost in the void. Fire coming from Muspelheim, a realm of fire, and frost coming from Niflheim, a realm of ice. The world is ruled over by Odin, the king of the Norse pantheon, and the destruction of the world is brought about by an amassing horde of monsters. Fenrir, the world serpent, a great host of undead, frost giants, fire giants, etc. Using Greek mythology as the point of comparison, creation begins with the emergence of the first primordial deities, the likes of Chaos, Gaia, Tartarus, and Eros. The kingship, though first held by Uranus and then seized by Cronus, is maintained by Zeus. And as for the end times, the Greeks didn't even have apocalyptic myths that prophesied the eventual destruction of the world. A tomb Ra, in the context of the bygone pantheons of the ancient world, is a singular entity, for he did create the world, rule the world, and it was prophesied that he would also destroy the world, returning it to the waters of chaos, the next cycle of creation beginning at a later time. A tomb was a creator god who brought himself into existence in the waters of noon, basically the Egyptian equivalent of chaos. Ra was the sun itself and generally the most important god in Egyptian mythology. He was the first king of the universe and the sustainer of life. Atum and Ra were combined into the syncretic fusion Atum-Ra, a compound deity that combined the power and purview of its two constituents, Atum the creator aspect and Ra the solar aspect. It was commonplace in Egyptian mythology to combine gods in this way and Ra especially became incorporated into these sorts of divine amalgamations. Other examples include Amun-Ra, Amun, another creator deity, Sobek-Ra, Sobek, the most powerful of the crocodile gods, and Ra-Horakti, Horakti, another name for Horus, the last god to rule the earth directly before the time of the pharaohs. Covering everything about a tomb, Ra, and a tomb-Ra, would make for a very long video, too long. To keep things manageable, we are only going to cover three aspects of their combined mythologies. Atum's role as the creator and the emergence of Ra, Ra as the king of creation and the sustainer of life, and the prophecies that pertain to Atum ending the world when he grows weary. The city of Heliopolis, which means city of the sun in Greek, was Atum's chief cult center. There, a group of nine gods were exalted above all others. This group, called the Enyad, meaning nine in Greek, was headed by a tomb Ra. In Greek mythology, chaos is described as the great void and the first being to emerge, independently manifesting itself. The parallel in Egyptian mythology is the waters of noon. The two are similar to one another, but there are important differences. Where chaos is void-like and self-created, the waters of noon are an endless body of water that always existed. A tomb brought himself forth in the waters of noon, 
something not unlike a baby giving rise to itself in a womb. From him came the second and third gods of the Enyad, a son and daughter, respectively, Shu, the personification of air, and Tefnut, the personification of moisture. These two, in turn, coupled and produced the fourth and fifth gods of the Enyad, another brother-sister pair, Geb, the personification of the earth, and Nut, the personification of the sky. As before, this second brother-sister pair then came together, and from them came Osiris, Set, Isis, and Nephthys, with Horus the Elder sometimes being included as a tenth. Because a tomb independently manifested himself, and independently procreated the second and third gods, these two gods then procreating additional gods, and so on, a tomb can be viewed as the grand total of creation, everything of him and radiating out from him. Reflecting this is an epithet sometimes used to describe the creator, the one who made himself into millions, or he who made himself into millions. At first, Geb and Newt, earth and sky, were conjoined, just as Gaia and Uranus were once conjoined in Greek mythology. Because of this, creation could not continue. There wasn't any room for life to happen. Eventually, Shu separates his two children, and the image of this, him trampling Geb underfoot while pressing Newt up overhead, was commonly depicted. With the celestial vault and the terrestrial foundation situated, the sun rose for the first time, and the children of Geb and Newt could be born. Once everything was in its proper place, the Egyptian conceptualization of the universe was basically like this. Earth, then atmosphere, and then sky, all three encased within the waters of noon, which was thought to encase creation, as we know the void of space to encase the planet we all live on. Following the creation of the world and the first sunrise, Ra becomes the dominant aspect of the joint entity Atum Ra. After the world was created, the cosmological focus shifted from creation to continuation. Nothing was more important to sustaining life than the sun. So with the world made and the cosmos ordered, it was Ra's time to shine, pun intended. However, just as a tomb was the creator, so too was he prophesied to be the destroyer. The prophecies pertaining to the end of the world mentioning him and not Ra. In this way, a tomb's contribution bookends that of Ra the sustaining of life situated between the creation and destruction of the world. In the primeval past, when the world was still young, Ra had yet to ascend to the sky. He ruled directly over the earth, and the earth, at this time, was cohabitated by both the gods and humanity. As Ra got older, it became more and more common for him to be challenged. In one myth, he's depicted as a drooling dotard, and in this vulnerable state, Isis contrives for him to divulge his true name, which she later shares with her son Horus. In another myth, Ra's old age emboldens humanity to unruliness, sensing weakness and even rebelling. But to say that this was unwise would be putting it lightly. After gathering the gods in council, Ra resolves to destroy humanity. He sends out his eye, the most powerful destructive force in all of Egyptian mythology, and mass slaughter ensues. A quick word on the eye before we continue. The eye is both an aspect of Ra and a goddess independent of him. It incarnates the destructive power of the sun, and it manifests through other goddesses. So when the eye is sent out, 
it means that one of Egyptian mythology's goddesses is sent out imbued with the power of the eye. In this myth, the goddess Hathor is unleashed as such. However, because the goddess Sekhmet became viewed as the destructive identity of other greater goddesses, like Hathor, Mut, and Isis, it is also said that it was Sekhmet who was sent. And with that clarified, back to the story. Ra, for reasons left unexplained, has a change of heart, so he doesn't want the killing to continue after the end of the first day. But now the eye was in the grip of insatiable bloodlust, one that would only subside after the whole of humanity had been scoured from the face of the earth. Because the eye was so powerful, it couldn't be contested strength against strength, so a subtle scheme had to be employed where the clash of direct confrontation would surely fail. A copious amount of beer was brewed, it was dyed red, and then poured onto the ground to look like a lake of blood. The sight of it caught the eye's attention. Drawn by the sight, she stopped and drank her fill, becoming incredibly intoxicated and then falling asleep. When she woke, the need to slaughter humanity no longer burned within her, and humanity was saved. After this ordeal, Ra relinquished the throne, his time on earth coming to an end. He ascended to the sky, which he thereafter sailed across each day, making his way through the underworld each night. The underworld was a perilous place, rife with dangers and challenges, and chief among these was the nightly battle with Apophis, a giant serpent described as the most dangerous of the chaos monsters, the divine order constantly jeopardized by him. Each night Ra was attacked by Apophis in the underworld, and with the help of the other gods who accompanied him, each night Apophis was beaten back and killed. However, no matter how many defeats and deaths he suffered, he always came back to life to attack again the subsequent night. Because Ra was the sustainer of life, Apophis attacking and trying to swallow the sun wasn't just an attack on Ra, but an attack on creation itself. In some sources, the creator is shown as a serpent swimming the waters of noon before the world existed. And with Apophis as the great serpent of chaos, the two together can be viewed as the dichotomy of creation and destruction, of order and disorder. Despite Apophis' best efforts though, it isn't actually him who ends the world, but a tomb, as we'll see later on. Ra's daily cycle, his arc across the sky and journey through the underworld, is described as a perpetual cycle of life, death, and rebirth, and is one of the ways, beyond being combined in a general sense, that a tomb and Ra are mythologically melded. The midday sun, when it is highest and strongest, is personified as a triumphant falcon, the falcon representing Ra at his mightiest. And the setting sun is personified as an old man, this old man being a tomb. And to elucidate this further, here's a passage from Egyptian mythology, a guide to the gods, goddesses, and traditions of ancient Egypt. The apparent movement of the sun across the sky was seen both as a life cycle and as a journey. The daily life cycle of the sun was more an extended metaphor than a narrative. The sun was said to be born each morning from the womb of the sky goddess, Newt. At dawn, the sun was a child, a daily repetition of the emergence of the sun child during the first time. At noon, the sun reached the peak of its strength and could be portrayed as a triumphant falcon. 
By evening, he was an old man, virtually the only god to be shown as old. The common identification of the evening sun as a tomb linked it with the myth of the creator growing weary and letting the world sink back into the noon. Sunset was equivalent to death, and the sun's flesh and soul passed into the underworld. After moving through the underworld, reviving its inhabitants with its light, the sun would be reborn. Each sunrise was a new beginning for the cosmos. This passage segues nicely to the final segment of the video, which is the end of the world, which, according to Egyptian mythology, will not be brought about by Apophis swallowing the sun, by the quarreling and infighting of the gods, or by some cataclysmic clash between monsters and gods. Instead, the creator will grow weary and will simply allow the world to be unmade. This weariness will be akin to that of an old man who grows tired of his fading form and comes to welcome death. And the unmaking of the world will be like a sandcastle, the world, reclaimed by the sea with the rising tide, the elements of creation dissolving and reassimilating into the waters of noon, the ultimate source of everything. This is all put unambiguously in Coffin Text Spell 1130. The Creator enumerates the many gifts he endowed humanity with. He then explains that after millions of years have passed, he and Osiris will become one, life and death uniting into a single entity. And with life and death no longer existing as distinct aspects of creation, everything will unravel and rejoin the homogeneity of the infinite, not unlike how the smoke from a burning forest rises up, disperses, and dissipates into the sky. All of this is similarly stated in the Book of the Dead, spell 175. Again, a tomb explains that after millions of years have passed, the world will be destroyed. This time, though, not from the union of life and death, but directly and deliberately from a tomb's own power. He will, per the words of his own declaration, destroy the world and return everything to the waters of noon. There is also an allusion to the end of the world in which the god Thoth predicts that the time of the gods will one day be cut short. And there is also the story of the shipwrecked sailor. And to cover both of these, here is another passage from Egyptian mythology, a guide to the gods, goddesses, and traditions of ancient Egypt. A tomb complains to Thoth about the children of Nut, a term that can refer to the fourth generation of the great Enyed or to the gods in general. The children of Nut are accused of making rebellion, war, and carnage, and of dividing up the wholeness of creation. Thoth, who is in charge of fixing the length of all creatures' lives, decrees that their years will be cut short. In the tale of the shipwrecked sailor, the serpent deities are suddenly destroyed by fire. Only the great serpent, the creator, and his little daughter, the eye goddess Mat, survive the holocaust. The serpent god warns the sailor that when he leaves, the island of the spirit will sink beneath the sea. This evokes an image of the primeval mound, the place of creation, being covered by the noon again. And that's it for this video. If you enjoy the content, please like and subscribe. Thanks for watching.